You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. Have a listen to this. Honeysuckle is galloping clear as she races towards the last. A lovely leap. She cleared it safely and heads up the hill now. Honeysuckle and Rachel Blackmore clear from Sharjah Epitome behind those. It's a beautiful straight 11 victories for Honeysuckle. She is the winner of the Unibet Champion Hurdle. Rachel Blackmore, good morning. Good morning, Mary. Thanks for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure, Rachel. You made racing smile again. You brought a smile to the face of the country. We're all so proud of you. Have you had a chance at all to reflect on the week you had in Cheltenham? Look, it's been an incredible week. Um, I definitely brought a smile to my own face anyway, under my mask. Um, I suppose it's hard to comprehend the last few days, to be honest. Um, But yeah, it's been a bit of a whirlwind. And then you didn't come home on Friday and put your feet up and perhaps bask in the incredible achievement, you know, champion jockey, breaking records, first woman achieving incredible success. You went back out to Thurlis on Saturday and won again and then to Downpatrick. Yeah, look, I suppose that's the the life that um, a jockey leads. Um, We're straight back into it when we come home, but... When you're when you're coming back from Cheltenham with uh, with winners under your belt, it's, it's a lot easier to to float around the place. I can tell you. When you set out for Cheltenham more than a week ago now, um, what were your ambitions? What was your hope? Yeah, look, I was heading over to Cheltenham um, with a very good book of rides, so you know there was a lot of expectation there. But Cheltenham is an extremely hard place to win. Everyone knows that. So you're, you're hoping that one of them might might do it for you. Um, so obviously when, when Honeysuckle won the champion hurdle on Tuesday, that was a that was just a massive um, a massive moment, um, relief as well as anything else. Um, but yeah, you, you're just hoping one of them one of them can do it. And uh, I could never have envisaged what transpired. It wasn't just one, it wasn't two, it was six. And you, I, I keep hearing you, you praise the horses and you praise De Bromhead and Mullins, but you're the one aboard these horses and you've got to steer them over these incredibly challenging courses. Um, Malachy Clerken, I saw saying about you, that you, you, you won in a variety of styles. Do you plot out each, each race according to the horse that you're aboard? Definitely. Um, I think every horse is different. They all have their own personalities and, um, you know, they all like to be ridden in different styles. Uh, some horses prefer to be allowed gallop on in front. Others prefer or need to get a little bit of cover at the back to get them to relax. So they all have their different styles and different quirks. But for me as a rider, you know, riding for the likes of Henry, De Bromhead, Willie Mullins, um, you know, it, it makes your life a lot easier. They're fantastic trainers. Henry's achievement this week to win the champion hurdle, champion chase and gold cup, that's something that's never been done before. Um, you know, it's absolutely incredible what he's done this week. And I know you say it's no big deal now being a female jockey, uh, but it is a big deal, Rachel. You and others before you, like like Katie Walsh and Nina Carberry, you have broken through at last ceiling, haven't you? I suppose when I came into racing, Katie and Nina had already broken that for me. They never made a big deal out of it, so I just continued on with with their ethos. Um, 
I feel inside of racing, it's not it's not a big deal. Maybe on the outside world, it is. But um, you know, we're very lucky to be involved in a sport where gender isn't an issue or made any um, deal about. So I'm I'm very grateful in, for racing in that sense. Why racing? Uh, your mum ha- has been talking to, to RT and other stations over the last week or so about uh, your love of horses from a very early age, that you were, you, you, you were always out there, you were always ambitious and you were always competitive. Yeah, look, I grew up on a farm um, surrounded by ponies and, you know, my parents trucked me and my brother and sister around the country to you know, pony club events and eventing and hunting and so on. So, yeah, we grew up around it. And, um, yeah, look, I, I always loved horses and ponies. Um, uh, they've given me some of the best days of my life. Mm. You're never flustered, they say. No heroics. You're cool under pressure. And when, you, when you're out there, travelling at those incredible speeds on these amazing animals, uh, are you ever fearful? No, I think if you if you're a jockey and you know you're you're thinking about what could go wrong, it's probably time to not be a jockey as your profession. Um, so yeah, being fearful isn't really something that you can um, you can have on your brain when you're doing our job. And how are you getting on on the injury front? Are you a lucky jockey? Yeah, look, touch wood. I've been um, I've been very lucky. Um, we have a very good uh, medical team headed by Dr. Jennifer Pugh, um, who keeps us keeps us sound. And she's done a fantastic job in the last while, and um, especially bringing us over to Cheltenham um, under very strict, you know, COVID protocols and so on. And uh, she's done a massive, a massive job for racing. And I know all the jockeys are extremely thankful of all her her very hard work. Uh, and what's next, Rachel? Uh, Aintree in your sights, of course. Yeah, we've Fairy House, we've Aintree, and then we're on to the Punchestown Festival. So it's all um, it's all go at the moment um, for racing. But yeah, I'm, I think I'm still trying to draw breath um, from the last few days. <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, when are you going to draw breath? Are you going to have a chance to, to go home to, to kill an all, to, to meet family and friends, to have a chance to, to sit back and just take it all in yeah we've we've no racing on wednesday so uh, i might get a chance to uh to watch back some of the the replays uh then but um at the moment we're on a five-day quarantine um after traveling back from the uk so um yeah we'll assess everything when that's done and out of the way and um, when you watch back those races rachel will you watch them back with a critical eye to see perhaps people will say you couldn't do better but you'll probably say you could or, or will you watch them for the sheer pleasure uh, of the occasion and the achievement yeah there's one or two you'll watch back maybe uh, with a critical eye but I don't think I'll be dwelling on them for too long and I think I'll enjoy the, enjoy mm. the other ones as, as you should indeed um, had you a favourite race was it Honeysuckle yeah look I think Honeysuckle you know she's She's so special. She's unbeaten. She's a champion hurdle winner. I'm so lucky to be associated with her. Um, so, yeah, th- that was just a massive moment for me to, to win a race like the champion hurdle. You know, that's, that's a race at the pinnacle of our sport. So, yeah, I think that was, that was my special moment of the week.
What about, you know, for children in Tipperary Pony Club, as you once were now, or in pony clubs around the country, who, who look at you now as a role model and think, you know, I want to be Rachel Blackmore when I grow up. Uh, what advice would you give them? Your mother said, I think there's a big post bag awaiting you at home in Tip. I suppose when I was in Pony Club, I never thought I could be a, a Rachel Blackmore. So I think, you know, I think just for all of them, just to to dream however they want to, and you know, it can be it can be achieved. Um, so you know, if you're if you're if you work hard and you get the opportunities, I suppose anything can happen. Anything can happen, indeed. The great Rachel Blackmore talking to us a little earlier. We're almost at the end of the first quarter, the first three months of 2021. Months that HSE boss Paul Reid said at their briefing yesterday, nobody wants to remember. Will the next three months see the promised ramping up of vaccinations? Will we begin to turn the tide against COVID-19? Paul Reid has been telling me why he believes the next three months will be different and why the past three are months to put behind us. My point was really, I guess, from health service and, and the, the public's perspective, probably the worst quarter of this pandemic that we've all experienced, obviously through mortality, but significant pressures on the health service, which our staff <coughs> stood up to fantastically. So that was my main point in terms of that. I do think heading into next quarter, we can look in it in a much better light, although notwithstanding, we're still in a difficult situation with the virus. Uh, and I say that because we started our vaccination campaign in the first quarter. I think what we put in place are the foundations of any immunisation campaign, which are firstly to protect people against sickness, illness, hospitalisations, ICU, etc. By doing that, firstly focus on the most vulnerable in our communities, which is the approach that we have taken. And then thirdly, build a wider herd immunity, which is our approach now as we head into the next quarter and all the way up to June. So I think we're going in a much stronger way than we did certainly in the start of January. Uh, we're still in a volatile situation, obviously, with the virus, but I think we can look ahead with much better foundations built now from the pathway ahead for us. What people want to know is, do you have the vaccinators, do you have the infrastructure, and do you have the supplies in place to begin delivering 250,000 doses a week during April, which is the million-a-month target, which would get us to 3 million by the end of June? Yes, and just to reassure your listeners, I mean, if if I just take what we will be by the end of this weekend and how we build on that, by the end of this weekend, we'll be close to three quarters of a million total vaccinations completed. Uh, about 550,000 of those will be dose once. Uh, so, you know, well over 14% of the population and about 250 vaccinations completed over the over 70. So that's an important phase going in because, as I mentioned, it's the most vulnerable done first. As we build up now into the next quarter, our approach is to... For in April, it's primarily to continue to focus through the medically vulnerable, which will be vaccinated primarily through hospitals uh, and some through GPs. We'll continue the programme to vaccinate all of the over 70s through April and into early May. And we'll also be in parallel progressing through some of the age groups in the 65 to 69 years of age. So what people will see as we head into the next quarter is forecasted increased supplies of about 1 million a month vaccinations continuing through GPs and clinics. But along with that, uh, our vaccination centres scaling up based on supplies around the country. Uh, so they will be seeing more deliveries through our vaccination centres, through our GPs, and they will be seeing it reaching wider out into the community as we move through the various uh, groups and cohorts that's prioritised. 
and I know nobody wants to be too specific here because it all depends on supply lines and all the rest. But if you're not hit, hitting 250,000 doses a week by the end of April, that means you're unlikely to meet your targets. Should we start be worrying then? Yeah, I think the reality of it is if you look at the supplies that we have coming to us, uh, the way we are mobilising to deliver against those, our combination of the centres that I just uh, outlined to you then, uh, and people will see the scale up as we move throughout April. Uh, and that will be largely through us scaling up our, our resourcing. Uh, we've almost 11,000 people now, fully skilled and trained vaccinators. Uh, but the way we'll be mobilising our centres to deliver to those volumes are uh, we will be utilising a combination of our own skilled staff experienced uh, vaccinators, uh, significantly recruiting from a campaign which we've been running. There's about 4,000 applications in it nationally and locally. Uh, and Do you have enough? Yeah, because it'll be a combination of it'll be a combination of the following. Firstly, our own skilled people will be moving from some of the hospitals, community centres, uh, in vaccination centres. Along with that, some of the recruited people, permanent bases. Along with that, some of the part-time bases. But equally apart from that, uh, let's remember the reach we have out into our GPs and the community, but also GPs will be working in our vaccination centres at various stages. You know, for example, this weekend. In the Helix Stadium, they will, in the Helix in DCU, they will be vaccinating, GPs will be vaccinating uh, over 6,000 people of the over 70s, you know. So that's the model as we move forward, reaching forward out into communities through GPs, ramped up resourcing in vaccination centres, and then at some stage, uh, pharmacies will, uh, retail pharmacies will be part of the process as well. Um, the AstraZeneca, so we're getting another 160,000 doses uh, from the stockpile that had been located in Italy. How critical is AstraZeneca's supply to delivery of those numbers, the uh, 80% by the end of June vaccinated? First yeah, there's a, jab. Yeah, there's significant su- uh, supplier for us. I mean, we've three and now moving into four suppliers at some stage once Johnson & Johnson come on board in April and throughout quarter two. Uh, and there is a likelihood that other suppliers will come on board as we move through quarter two and quarter three, which I think will give us better resilience. We all know we've had real challenges with AstraZeneca throughout the first quarter uh, in terms of predictability and reliability of their deliveries. Uh, we do expect that to be becoming more consistent uh, and predictable as we move into quarter two. So they are a significant portion of our supplies uh, as we move through the quarter. But right. I think what we're beginning to see is is greater resilience also coming along the supply lines. Uh, and in fairness to the other suppliers, uh, Pfizer, Moderna, they have been quite strong, uh, one exception early stages, but quite strong throughout. And that's good for us going into quarter two. From the 31st of March, so for the second quarter, uh, we will start contact tracing backwards uh, seven days. Up to now, it's only been the two days to try and uh, establish who the person infected uh, might have spread the disease to. Do you have enough contact tracers to do the seven day backwards tracing, trying to find the source if we're at around 600 cases a day? Yeah, just to put uh, two things in context. First of all, we do, and it's important for your listeners to understand this, we do do retrospective tracing. Like 80% of our cases at any given time, we can identify it back to a source. And our public health teams do this quite strongly. And they go back to all cases uh, that they are working through, complex cases, identify back to a workplace, identify back to uh, certain levels in the households uh, or, or various workplace or education facilities, for example. There are about 20% of cases where we cannot at this stage identify what we call them as community 
uh, transmission levels and that happens all across European countries. What we are doing now is, uh, and we do this, and Mike Ryan WHO are very clear on this, you do this as your transmission levels are coming down rather than increasing now. Although we are increasing at the moment, we're planning to do this uh, from the start of April. In essence, as you just mentioned, going back to those ones that we haven't identified, Mm -hmm. trying to get further detail on the source of it. We have recruited extra contact tracers. Uh, We're in total up to about 900 contact tracers now at this stage. Uh, so it's not just purely about more people being put at it. Uh, it is our second line of defence. Our first line of defence is always the public. Uh, but we are going to be asking more questions, more detailed information to try narrow down those 20 Because there have order. been false dawns on this before. You spoke to us about it back in December and then, of course, the numbers uh, went higher and, and the towel had to be thrown in at that stage. So can people be confident if it is actually starting now? Because there have been a lot of calls for this. Um that it will actually, you'd be in a position to continue and go on delivering this information. But that is the point, I think, that we all need to be clear. We we are starting it, we will commence it. If the disease gets to a level, and everybody's very clear on this, the WHO, Mike Ryan is very clear on this, if the disease gets to a level where it's um, in out of control in a community level, it has to be, your first line has to be your public health measures, And then equally, you must go at speed to contact as many contacts as you possibly can. So you have to focus on speed in those. And that's exactly what happened after December as we head into January. The volume of cases, it would be impossible to put any amount of resource once it gets to a level of transmission in the community. But we do see it as a key element of our tool. It's an extra tool in our armory now as we move into the next phase. Uh, But ultimately, it will be always a case if they get to a level beyond uh, traceability in the community. It's, there's no point to just put more resources out. You really need your community measures to kick in, which we've done really well. The public have done fantastically well. The um, up to 50% increase in cases in children, of course, the school holidays uh, starting today. Um, what's going on there and what more can the HSE do to support schools returning after Easter uh, if those rates of an infection continue in children? Yeah, well, what we have seen, and again, we've really good data and knowledge of this, both from September to December in the school term, and now since schools have scaled back up into operation, the levels of transmission, and we've done very significant uh, testing, both in primary and post-primary schools, and you, the level of positivity of all those tests we're doing, on average, is about 2.7%. It's actually about 1.6% in post-primary So there's very good data that we have that the transmission levels, as if we identify a positive case within a school, it's not transmitting highly within a school. What is clearly happening is there's a lot of activity outside of the school uh, and within communities. uh, Play dates, you mean? Play dates is very clearly one of the aspects of it that's coming through in terms of our visits between households. Very clear from our public health doctors, the information they have, that that's a very significant issue. So it's really just, and again, I know your commentary just before this was talking about earlier on about the issue of just public always understanding we're dealing with a different variant, dealing with a different behaviour of the virus than we would have been in the early stages of last year. And the transmissibility of it is quite strong and people might be doing something that they feel is quite innocent. Um but it transmits really quickly. It grabs okay. the opportunity to transmit. Two other issues not related to COVID. First, the Primetime Investigates programme and the passing of information uh, to the Department of Health. Is it right 
whether it's legal and the HSE in passing the information on said you've got an opinion that what you did was lawful. Maybe lawful. Is it right that patients and families' confidential information is shared without their knowledge? I did watch the primetime investigates, obviously, and you know, certainly from my perspective, and the HSE, the Department of Health, have obviously issued a statement in relation to it. HSE perspective, look, public families, everybody must always trust uh, their health system, and confidentiality is obviously cornerstone of any health delivery. Uh, so, from our perspective, you know, we would we immediately we heard information with this. We did uh, seek some further information to report her. If we get any further information. I most certainly will be making sure we follow through to see it. But that video you know, of, perspe- of a distressed child would be accessible. But the reality, from our perspective, like there's, you know, if nothing can be right about sharing information inappropriately, you now and you know, if any information is that it has been shared, I know there was one reference that the some of the information came from a direct contact to a consultant or a doctor. Uh, but certainly from a HSE's perspective, we would not be sharing information inappropriately. And if there's any information we have been shared inappropriately, you know, I certainly would like to get the bottom of it. But yeah, from our understanding is uh, anything would have been shared, would have been shared purely on a legal basis, but not breaking uh, patient confidentiality. That, can, you know, that can't happen. And finally, the story today about a private school uh, that staff got access to excess vaccines. Um, And after the controversy over what happened in the Coombe Hospital in Dublin, weren't there supposed to be protocols to stop this? And there are, Anya. I mean, there are very clear guidelines. uh, Re-communicated out in early January, re-communicated out on a regular basis. From my perspective, from HSE perspective, there can be no ambiguity around how you arrange vaccination clinics, how backup lists can, should be organised in advance. Uh, we really do expect all services uh, to comply with this. We understand totally as vials are opened and there's a period of time of a few hours uh, where the seal is broken, that must be utilised. But there, it should be planned, you know, in terms of we come to the final stages of the day to knowing how many vials to open now at this stage are not open. And knowing that you have a backup list, which would be in line with our sequencing protocols. So, you know, there's certainly very clear guidance on it. And it does, it's extremely annoying. It's extremely frustrating for the public. Uh, and it's extremely annoying frustrating for, for myself and us in the HSE uh, when instances like this happen. You know, and it's, um, it's hard for us to reach out and be over all of the vaccination uh, processes that are going on. But there's very clear guidelines uh, gone out and it cannot condone when something like this happens. And that was HSE Chief Executive Paul Reid who spoke to me earlier. We're going to go back to the news that Intel is to create another 1,600 permanent jobs at its plant in Leakslip in County Kildare. That announcement made late last night. Joining us on the line is Intel spokesperson Sarah Sexton. Good morning and thanks for joining us. Good morning, Rachel. When will these jobs start to come on stream? Well, the project that we're working on at the minute is about halfway complete. So we'll be hiring for those jobs in the coming months and years. So it's going to take another couple of years before the expansion is completed. And so it'll be another couple of years before all of those jobs are brought online to support that. And are these new jobs, are they broadly similar to the jobs in the company at the moment? They are new jobs, but yes, they would be quite similar to the kinds of jobs that we would have in 
leak slip today. So largely technical roles that would be in our manufacturing operations. So things like a variety of engineering roles, manufacturing technicians, people in support roles like facilities, but largely technical roles. And yes, very similar to the kinds of roles that are there today. Mm, This is highly skilled work. I mean, are there enough sufficiently skilled workers for these jobs or is it likely that some workers will come from overseas? Well, I think it's a testament um, to the skilled workforce that we have, that we've been doing this manufacturing and leak slip for almost 30 years now. So we're confident that we'll continue to be able to get the right people to do that. And we're, you know, actively engaging with the education system where we can to be able to support that, whether it's student programmes or working with the universities. But like I said, I think the fact that we've been doing this for you know almost three decades is a testament to the abilities of our people and the people here locally and confident that we'll be able to continue to do that. There was a hint last night that there will be further investment beyond these 1600 jobs. What can you tell us about that? Well, our CEO, Pat Gelsinger, gave an update last night that um, Intel is you know, redoubling our efforts in manufacturing, which is really at the core of what we do. And he announced um, a business, Intel Foundry Services, which is really about doing more manufacturing for our customers. Um, The first investment for that business is being made in Arizona. And he did say that there will be an opportunity to talk about further investments in the US and Europe within the year. Uh, We don't know exactly where those are going to be. We haven't talked at that level of detail yet. But there is a strong chance, at least, that those jobs could also come to Leak Slip or indeed to elsewhere in Ireland. Well, I think he's made the commitment that Intel is looking to do more manufacturing in Europe. We really don't know where that will be, you know, Ireland or otherwise. I think it's good news for Intel that we're, you know, we're making that commitment to manufacturing, but it remains to be seen where that will be. Mm. Exactly. This comes at an interesting time because people may have read in recent weeks that there's a worldwide shortage of computer chips at the moment. How is that affecting what you're doing? Well, I think, you know, the the, the demand for what we do is exponentially growing. And I think the last year has probably just shone a light on just how reliant we are on the kind of technology that Intel and other companies make. So... We're investing in technologies and in manufacturing technologies to be able to provide more of what we do. And whether that's manufacturing Intel's own products or now through this foundry service, manufacturing products for our customers on their designs also. But I think that, you know, the whole ecosystem is responding to the challenges of the demand that there is for this kind of technology. And this is our commitment in that space. And it's quite an ambitious commitment um, that our CEOs talked about last night and we're going to be playing a part in that here in Ireland. Um, we've you know invested seven billion in the last two years and which is helping us double our manufacturing capacity here in Ireland and that's going to mean that Europe's positioned to deliver more manufacturing capacity and you know Europe has set an ambition that it wants to double the manufacturing capacity of chips that are coming out of the region by 2030 which is also a very ambitious goal and you know Intel is positioned to be a technology partner in that and we're excited that we're going to be able to do a lot of that from Ireland. Sarah Sexton of Intel, thank you very much for joining us this morning. 
Well, we're going to Egypt now. And by now, you've probably seen the pictures of the giant container ship that's stuck in the Suez Canal. The incident is causing chaos on one of the world's most important shipping routes. And financial commentator Justin Urquhart Stewart joins us now on the line to talk about this. Justin, how important is the Suez Canal to world trade? Good morning. As the Suez Canal is absolutely vital. Uh, when you think about, uh, really, it's over 50 ships a day. And as you see from the pictures, these are not small ships. By the way, that particular container ship is length is actually the same as the height of the uh, uh, of uh, um, one of the main skyscrapers in New, in New York. It's quite astonishing, the Empire State Building. Um, but the impact it has is really very significant because if that is blocked, you then have to go around around Africa, and of course, adds to time. And we've already seen uh, a rise in future prices of various goods coming through and anticipated shortage of particular areas, um, particularly in terms of things like microchips. But it just shows how sensitive global trade is to have a blockage like that with something which we, well, frankly, taken for granted for many years. And do we know what's on board these ships that are stuck and, as you say, the, the knock-on impact it's going to have on the global supply chain? The answer is no. We don't know the full details of the uh, of the uh, of what it's got inside those containers. Uh, but it is absolutely huge. In fact, it, that ship can only go into a very select number of ports, big enough to actually handle those that sort of size. So what you're going to be seeing now is people anticipating what they think is on there. Microchips was one. Rather strangely, also lavatory paper was considered. I can't think why on earth that would be being transported all the way around the world. But um, as we've seen, it doesn't take much to create shortages or even the anticipation of shortages. It's had an impact directly, obviously, in the oil price. That went up a bit yesterday, but actually it started coming back down again this morning. The other area to look at in terms of it, in terms of the share prices, so oil companies have gone up quite strongly. Um, and uh, then also you've seen the shipping companies themselves uh, actually uh, falling in price. But it shows actually what the position is in the shipping worldwide at the moment. It's in a very bad state. A lot of ships and containers are in the wrong place. Um, and so trade around the world has not been operating very successfully in the past year. Well, because this is raising this pandemic. This has now made it considerably worse. If they can't clear it in the next few days, then that worse that gets to concern that uh, pain will actually build up, and you'll see further issues relating to particularly uh, the European recovery, uh, which is still, as we know, pretty weak. Do we know much about the company who owns this ship, um, this supersized ship? Yes, it's a Taiwanese company, um, and you'll see from the name written on the side of Evergreen, that's uh, the name of the company. Um, and they are, you'll also, you'll see them turning up, they have uh, freight planes as well flying around. Um, and uh, so in terms of uh, uh, transportation, uh, the group is absolutely huge and has been able to expand really quite considerably over the past few years, but only in the long haul uh, supersize area. Um, after that, you then have to go down to the much, much smaller container ships to actually get into what the ports that we would regard as being, well, the normal ones, not the supersized ones. And what does this mean for Egypt? It relies a lot on the Suez Canal. Egypt's primary source of overseas earning is, is of course, uh, money coming from uh, from this, because Egypt doesn't have much in the way of oil herself. Um, tourism, of course, is rock bottom at the moment, uh, uh, not only in the Middle East, but elsewhere, for obvious reasons. Um, and so, at a time when the economy in Egypt is in uh, some considerable difficulty, this is the last thing it needed. And what are the options for the shipping company stuck there? Can they reroute? 
Now, it's really quite difficult because uh, to take a container, to take those ships around uh, the Horn of Africa, obviously most ships are designed to be able to weather difficult times, but their whole structure in terms of supplies, crew, all those elements, and insurance are all designed so that if it be going through the Suez Canal, it will be cheaper to run than if it was actually going round the Horn. Uh, not round the Horn, but round uh, the Cape of Good Hope. So that will add to cost at a time when people are being concerned about inflationary pressures um, throughout the world. So uh, at a time, again, as we're starting to see some economies opening up, obviously we're seeing obviously in continental Europe still some considerable difficulty there, but as we're starting to see uh, economies open up with the vaccines coming through, uh, again, this is just another blow to that and is going to delay the recovery. You could see that probably meaning that the uh, European area economy is probably going to be pretty close to zero growth in, in the second quarter. Okay, Justin Urquhart, Stewart, financial commentator, thank you for that. How should our villages, towns and cities change after the pandemic? Will they change? Well, this week online, Sligo is hosting a conference examining how to reimagine itself. And one of the speakers will be Jens Tom Iverson, creative director for the city of Gothenburg in Sweden. His nickname is Rain Man because his Rain Gothenburg project aims to make it the best city in the world to live in when it rains. It rains 40% of the time there. We know a bit about that. He's been telling us more. One thing is that us as humans, we need to go outdoors. And uh, if it's one thing that the pandemic showed us, it's that we need it even more to be able to come out and actually also socialize, but keeping the distance outdoors. So if you live in a country where it's a lot of rain, it's uh, kind of obvious that you have something you have to deal with there. Uh, I noticed that it's very rarely actually that countries or cities as our city in Gothenburg in Sweden is the same. We don't really take use of the rain in a way that we could, which is, you know, dealing creative with it. Well, let's talk about what you have done, because in this country, when it rains, most of us try and run indoors as quickly as possible, unless you're a child. Children love the rain. And in Gothenburg, you have really transformed your playgrounds because of the rain. Will you tell us what you've done? Yes, so far we we started that work with the playgrounds to transform them into rain playgrounds because we also, Gothenburg is quite a rainy city and that means that we have some dry places which means small roofs so you can be underneath when it is raining but that's not enough. We're really trying to look at it as how can we also lift out the qualities within rain. So these roofs, they gather the water, the rainwater, and leads it to a pipe in the end and uh, brings it down to a thing where the children can play with it and gather it. So we're creating those uh, places where you want to go when it's raining. And it's not only because you're dry, it's also actually some kind of bonus effect in terms of art or installations that could be activated. In a way, it's really simple, but actually very effective. And I was interested to hear in another park that you had put in shelters and barbecues and and one particular shelter is used as a classroom during the day and then it's designated as a hub for the homeless at night time. Yes, it's a project out in in a harbour and so during daytime it's an outdoor classroom. Uh, for children and teachers, of course. And, uh, well, anyone. It's also a playground, so you can go there no matter if you have a class or not. And also it's a container that it's built up uh, with some Spanish architects that did a fantastic job 
So in the nighttime, there is also a container there. And there is this, of course, it's always some parts is shelter from the weather, so to speak, rain and wind. So it's uh, it's uh, totally okay for homeless people to go there uh, in the night. Homeless people in the city when it rains, they are the most vulnerable. And uh, so we need to deal with that in some way or the other. So that's, um, that's a very yeah. good point. And you mentioned they're working with artists and poets and, and harnessing their creativity. And you, you've done that yes. to great effect in Gothenburg by putting, well, you've put poems on manhole covers and you have a, yes. a special type of paint. Is it that only runs when it rains? It only comes out when it rains. It makes the, the surface kind of the water just bounces off. So if you have a concrete surface, so to speak, you you it's very graphic, very it's very clear. You see it very clear. The 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 reason why we do all this is actually to put attention to rain, uh, because that's something we need to. We we don't expect to all of a sudden that people will start loving rain, but actually we started this different approach to rain, working with artists that lifts rain in different ways, and also of course it's a. Uh, environment project, climate project, where we work with how can we deal with rain in a city in a more sustainable way and green and blue way. So it's a lot of a lot of different projects, small and big projects, everything around rain in, in a creative way. A blank canvas here. Jens Toms Iverson there, who is the creative director for the city of Gothenburg in Sweden. Last night's report by the RTE investigations team revealed that the Department of Health had been secretly gathering information about children with autism who were involved in legal actions against the state. A number of contributors to the report broadcast on last night's primetime raised questions about the legality, ethics and fairness of the practice. But the Department of Health has said such information sharing was normal practice, lawful and proportionate. Well, we're joined now by the Children's Ombudsman, Niall Muldoon, who watched last night's report by Conor Ryan of RTE Investigates. Niall Muldoon, good morning. Good morning. Does it surprise you, or did it surprise you, to learn that the Department of Health would ask doctors, psychiatrists and social workers uh, for sensitive information about children who were involved in legal actions against the state without telling the children or their families? Absolutely, it surprised me. Um, you know, it, it made me very angry to see that. Um, what we're talking about here is, is sort of, you know, uh, it's almost a, a deceptive. I mean, you use the word secret gathering of information. Anywhere where there's secrets in Ireland, know this. Anywhere there's secrets is is a problem. Those are the most vulnerable children in Ireland, you know, and the families have, have doing their best to try and get the, the rights that those children are entitled to. And they sued the government for some for that reason because the government hadn't provided in the first place. Um, and I suppose from my point of view, I need to, we need to ask the government and the Taoiseach, uh, who leads the government, what sort of state are we trying to create here? You know, uh, we're trying to provide, a, a look for a, a state in which children's rights are protected and promoted at all times. But yet we have, um, as, as early as, as recently as yesterday, the statements coming out that say it's normal practice, it's lawful, maybe, but is it proper and appropriate? Absolutely not. You know, we're looking at situations where children's um, private therapeutic services, private uh, medical services, um, 
parents, the understanding of parents' situation, whether there's addictions involved, whether there's separations involved, being gathered for the solely for the reason of putting pressure back on those families to drop lawsuits. You know, that's the most despicable type of, of carry on for any state to be looking at. And the problem too is that it's over 10 years. So that means it's systemic. It's built in and various different staff members have come and gone and the system has kept working to gather that information. So there's but really do, but, serious but do you accept, questions to be asked. Do, do you accept, Niall Muldoon, that when the state is the subject or, or, or is facing litigation from people, that it does have a right and a duty in the public interest to defend that litigation? And part of that defence involves gathering information about the litigants um, and, uh, uh, you know, that what the department is saying is that this was normal practice and, in fact, it engaged a senior counsel who... Um, also stated that it was it, it was normal practice to do this. Again, I mean, we, we can. There's always arguments over what's what's legal, and I won't get into that side of it. But for me, normal is not. If you say it's normal, then let's let's assume the, it's a fair playing field. Can those family members who are taking that lawsuit knock on the on the GP's door that the minister or the secretary general goes to and say, "Can you give me the records of those consultations you've had with them?" It's not an equal playing field. It's, a, it's an abuse of power as far as I'm concerned in relation to families and children who are extremely vulnerable, who are under pressure to start with and who are trying to deal with a new uh, diagnosis of autism. We also have to ask the question, has this happened with other, chil- or other children where families have sued in relation to assessment of needs perhaps or school places or maternity issues? Are the, is this a common practice when we say normal and uh, the Department of Education said it was a useful tactical uh, way to work in regards to litigation. So again, we're saying let's gather the information that we can gather and use it against the families who are under pressure already, as opposed to using our resources to provide the services those families are looking for. It's a it's a question of mind and ethically the, the government need to look at it and say what sort of a society we're trying to create. Do, do you want this practice stopped then? Absolutely. I mean, I think from, from there's a couple of questions need to happen or statements need to come out now. Has this stopped? And also has the Department of Health made immediate contact with the families involved? Because there's hundreds of families out there worried that they might be the ones involved here. They might be the ones that have information gathered on them. So we need to make sure that those families know that they have this information available. And finally, we just want to take a look and see, has this been happening in other lawsuits in which children are involved? Because, it's, again, if you consider this to be normal, then I would concern, be very concerned about the culture that you're working in. And just finally, uh, Niall Muldoon, the families here in this case, I, I mean, we, we know they weren't told that this information was being gathered about them. But what impact could that have now on the relationship between those children and the professionals who are providing them with care and treatment in the future? Well, it's, it's got to be damaging. I mean, as you heard Paul Reid saying there earlier on, just, I mean, confidentiality is the cornerstone of all medical and uh, therapeutic services. And our, our children with autism are going to these therapeutic services with the sense that this is about them and them only and no information will be shared outwards. But to find that, you know, if the, if a child has a meltdown or is there some sort of a challenging behaviour situation, that that is recorded for nobody to look at, for no for a, for a lawyer to use against them, that's the absolute opposite of a therapeutic okay. service. So, yeah, there's, there's a real serious concern in that regard. So we have to ask who asked for the information and who gave the information, and those answers are crucial. All right, Children's Ombudsman Niall Muldoon, thank you for talking to us. 
as you may have heard earlier on our news bulletins, 10 people have been killed at a shooting in Colorado in the United States. A police officer who was the first to respond to the scene is among the dead. One man has been arrested. Our reporter Sinead Spain joins us now. Sinead, this shooting took place in a supermarket. What more do we know? What we know is that the supermarket King Supers is around 40 kilometres northwest of Denver and locals are saying that the shooting began just outside one of two entrances into that supermarket before the gunman then entered the shop. Police say they began to get 911 calls from the public at around half past two in the afternoon and that a man with a patrol rifle had begun shooting so obviously officers were deployed at that stage. Now Boulder is a university town and the local news outlets have been reporting that that the area has been bracing itself for a massive snowstorm so people were likely picking up supplies ahead of what was to be a major weather event in the area. Police have since confirmed that 10 people have died in the shooting including, as you said, a law enforcement officer. The police chief of Boulder is Maris Harold, and she gave this update at the scene. The Boulder Police Department began receiving phone calls of shots fired in the area and a phone call about a possible person with a patrol rifle. Officer Talley responded to the scene, was the first on the scene, and he was fatally shot. I also want to commend the heroic actions of the officers responding, not only from Boulder PD, but from across the county and other parts of this region. Police officers' actions fell nothing short of being heroic. Older Police Chief Maris Harold. Sinead, one man is in custody. What's known about him? We've very little detail really about him. Police have confirmed the arrest but they've given no more information and neither would they be drawn on a possible motive for the shooting. But there was some live streamed video from the scene which showed a man being led shirtless out of the shop by police. But it is not clear at this stage if that is connected directly to the shooting. Some details have been released, however, about the officer who was killed. Yes, we know now he's 51-year-old Eric Talley and he's survived by his wife and seven children. They range in age from 20 to 7. His father, Homer Talley, released a statement to ABC News saying that Eric loved his family more than anything. He joined the police service when he was 40 and in recent times he'd he'd been learning to be a drone operator because he was looking for a job to keep him off the front lines. And as we've heard, colleagues paying tribute to his bravery and his work in serving the community of both. Older. Police, we know, are now working to identify the remaining victims of the shooting. Michael Doherty is the district attorney in Boulder and he has promised that justice will be done. I also want to stress how incredibly sorry I am for all the victims who were killed at King Supers. These were people going about their day, doing their food shopping, and their lives were cut abruptly and tragically short by the shooter who is now in custody. I promise the victims and the people of the state of Colorado that we will secure justice and do everything we must do to get justice in this case. Michael Doherty there, who's Boulder's district attorney. Sinead, this is the second mass shooting in the United States in a week. 
It is last Tuesday, March 16th, eight people were killed in Atlanta in a series of attacks on Asian spas. And obviously this being the second attack in a week, it will certainly put gun control at the top of the agenda. We know that the US President Joe Biden has been briefed. We haven't heard anything from him yet, but he has previously called for common sense gun control laws. Sinead, thank you for that. Now, the Minister for Further and Higher Education told the heads of universities that he was concerned that COVID-19 outbreaks among students could have a negative impact on on on-campus learning in the next academic year. Last month, Simon Harris met representatives from some third-level institutions following a number of outbreaks of COVID-19 among third-level students in Galway and Limerick. Well, our reporter Eilish Sheehy has obtained a copy of the minutes recorded at that meeting and she's here to tell us more. Eilish, uh, the, uh, you attended that meeting. Uh, the, um, what can you tell us about the people who attended that meeting and about what was discussed? Well, Justin, the Minister for Further and Higher Education, Simon Harris, representatives from the University of Limerick, NUI Galway, GMIT, the Institute of Technology in Sligo and smaller colleges all attended the meeting to discuss the recent outbreaks associated with college activity and how each responded to it. Minutes of that meeting on the 19th of February have been obtained by Morning Ireland under a Freedom of Information request. Now, these minutes were created by officials at the Department of Further and Higher Education. And in this document, the officials clearly say that it was a real risk factor that the students were back in accommodation but not back on site and that risk factor had to be managed to ensure it didn't affect decisions regarding the reopening of the sector in the next academic year. And what did the Minister Simon Harris say at that meeting? So, as I said, the minister expressed his concern about the outbreaks and in particular he explained that he was facing into a crucial period where he would have to discuss the reopening of third-level colleges with other ministers in government. The document goes on to say that the minister felt that outbreaks like this were drawing undue attention and blame to students and the wider sector. The minutes of this meeting go on to state that the next few weeks would be crucial as the minister would be making the case to government regarding the opening up of the sector in the next academic year. Now, Minister Simon Harris said that he wanted to see a significant increase in on-site activity in the next academic year, but he believed there should be a cautious approach for the remainder of this academic year to avoid outbreaks and the difficulty they could bring for the sector in arguing for more on-site provision in 2021 and 2022. He said it was important that students were taking ownership of their health and safety and understood how this is linked to greater reopening. So clearly, Justin, from these minutes, as we can see, the minister was saying that the outbreaks of recent weeks posed a very real risk, not just to reopening the on-site, of on-site learning for the rest of this academic year, but that it also threatened the support which he might generate at government level for on-site learning in the next academic year. And Ailish, you've also spoken to the Union of Students of Ireland about this. Yes, I spoke to Lorna Fitzpatrick, who is president of the USI, and said, she said that while the USI is part of the steering group that meets with the minister on a regular basis, that to date plans for the next academic year haven't been discussed.
We haven't had any engagement with the minister or the department in relation to the planning for the next semester. And I think that's something that really needs to happen very quickly. It's important that all stakeholders are around the table when we're discussing these plans so that we can identify any challenges and work together to find solutions to those to ensure that students can get back on campus in a meaningful way in the next academic year. So we're calling on the minister and the department to engage directly with USI on those plans for the next academic year to ensure that everybody's voices are heard in those discussions. Now, on that point, the minister is due to meet with that steering group, Justin, later this morning. It meets every Friday and it consists of university representatives, further education providers and the USI. A spokesperson for Simon Harris has told me that plans for the next academic year, which are already underway, will be discussed at that meeting this morning, but a revised plan won't be finalised until May. The minister's spokesperson also said that there is a shared objective for greater level levels of on-site activity next year, but the ultimate approach will depend on public health guidance. And who else have you been speaking to, Eilish? I also spoke to Jim Miley. He's the Director General of the Irish Universities Association, who was at that meeting on the 19th of February. And while he is confident students will be able to return safely to on-campus learning next September, he appealed to students to stick to the public health guidelines. We share the ambition of the Minister to get as many students and indeed staff back on campus as soon as possible and certainly for next autumn. We know that a sizable proportion of the adult population will have been vaccinated by autumn so we're confident that we can bring students back onto campus safely and we'll continue to work with them and with staff representatives and with departmental officials to make that happen. The overwhelming majority of students are playing by the rules and they're keeping themselves and their families and their friends safe. But unfortunately, there's a small, a very small minority who have behaved recklessly. And we'd appeal to all students to please stay with the programme for just another while. Jim Miley there. And one final note, Justin, it's important to point out that the document which we obtained noted that the outbreaks among students in Galway and Limerick last month occurred through off-campus activities and not on-site learning. All right. Very interesting. Ailey Sheehy there. Thank you very much indeed for that. Now, last week, the Catholic Archbishop of Dublin called for an all-Ireland approach to the return of worship ahead of Easter. He said it was grossly unfair that those seeking to worship can't do so until level two. Despite this, churches will remain closed for Easter, a key celebration in the Christian calendar. Our reporter, Keen McCormick, has gauged the reaction of parishioners and clerics. Jesus Christ is risen today. It's just so powerful. I, I love it. A hymn D. Huddleston will miss on Easter Sunday. It tells of how we feel and it, it lifts um, the name of Jesus. So I really do love that one. But she'll hear this hymn online because the service will be on YouTube. But for Dee, a parishioner in the parish of Selbridge and Straffan with Newcastle Lions in County Kildare, the social side of meeting others won't happen this Easter. 
Easter Sunday is always such an uplifting Sunday because as Christians, we believe that that's the day that Christ rose from the dead and it means such a lot to us. And we all meet together on, on Easter Sunday. We always have communion on Easter Sunday. So there's a real sense of community. It's lovely having the services online, but you can't get that same feeling of all being together. The parish's rector, Stephen Neal, has similar feelings. It will be very strange once again not to be able to have that shared sense of presence with each other. The Church of Ireland rector says churches shouldn't open until it is safe for them to do so. I don't think it's worth jeopardising lives. I'm, I'm relieved that the southern government hasn't actually issued a, a return to worship permission as, as such as they have up north. And even if they did, I, I must say I would be reluctant to, to do so. I, I think we, we should proceed cautiously. For the sake of a couple more months, I would be prepared to, to wait and hold off. In Moy Ross in Limerick, Eileen Sheehan is sad Easter won't be happening at the Corpus Christi Parish. Yeah, we're really going to miss the Easter, you know, and and seeing all the people coming in. And it's a very important time. It's more important than Christmas. Eileen is the local sacristan and she'd like to see churches reopening soon. I would love if I'd love. I got up in the morning and said Masses was back to normal. Now, I was in, I was, I happened to be in town on Saturday and I went to the market here in Limerick. I don't usually go, but I was just passing. And the amount of people... And I said, I said to myself, my God, I said, look at my church above Corpus Christi. There's plenty of room for 10 people on the right and 10 people on the left, even if we had two or three masses. Definitely, I think myself that masses should be allowed. If this keeps going on, I'd be fearful for the church coming back. If we lose our faith, what will we have? And while reopening won't happen this side of Easter, local parish priest Pat Hogan says it could be accommodated. For instance, at Christmas, we put on a number of extra masses and we were able to accommodate everyone who came and they all socially distanced and it was all very well organised and they all wore masks and they all respected each other. And I think we could still do that. Waiting for level two is, is much too long. I think people, we could accommodate them safely tomorrow and keep them all safe. The Russian Orthodox Church celebrates Easter in May. Easter is, as you know, the greatest feast of the year. Kira Sullivan is a parishioner in the parish of St. Peter and St. Paul at Harold's Cross in Dublin. Before COVID, when we could actually gather together in the church, what happens is people from the parish would start gathering together from around 11 o'clock on the Saturday night. The service then would really begin at midnight. Kira will miss being at the religious service and meeting people afterwards. Well, after the service, we would have all had baskets of food with us. The priest would bless them and then we would go downstairs and share a table together as a congregation. A great part of the celebration is, is coming together at the end and sharing in that paschal food that we would have. So, yes, that's a big part of what we miss. And we just miss the community of meeting each other and sharing in the feast together. Father Michael Nosanoff, the parish priest, says he hopes restrictions on religious gatherings can change before his church celebrates Easter in May. Yes, we support this call of the Archbishop of Dublin. So I think it's very important to open the churches. We still hope that we will be able to celebrate this Easter with our people, even if we won't be able to to let people attend the service. We will broadcast the service online. 
That was Father Michael Nasanov of the Russian Orthodox Parish at Harold's Cross in Dublin, ending that report by Cian McCormick. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.